Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? Mr. Real. What's that? I, I can't hear you. I said, how are you doing? Oh. Can you not hear me? Once the clapping stopped, I could hear you fine. Oh, I thought maybe I wasn't speaking loudly enough. No, no, no. You're, you're speaking plenty loud. How's, uh, how's life treating you? Well, I will tell you, it's very exciting. Lots going on. I'm wearing, I put on a jacket right before the show because it's so cold here. I understand you're very cold down there in Utah, especially southern Utah as well. But up here in the Pacific Northwest, we're so cold, we're bundling up. I need a survival jacket, for crying out loud. I'll tell you, it's 107 degrees today, I think, in southern Utah. So it's hot, but we've got our AC turned to 76, I think. But Ooh. because it's so hot outside, it the AC runs nonstop. In the office that I record in has a vent right next to me here. Mm -hmm. And I'm a, I'm a little bit chilly. I've got, in fact, I'm so chilly that I got my uh, my soft, you can't see it, but my little soft little shoes on that keep my little toesies warm, you know? I'm just glad to see you're wearing pants this week. Yeah, yeah. Last time I had shorts on when I got up to turn a light on or something, and uh, I was hoping nobody caught that, that the level was just right, but <laughs> you got me. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I'm getting ready to fly out bright and early tomorrow morning to Utah. By the way, just so you know, I'm pranking you a little bit. It's in the 80s outside, but they've turned the, the thermostat so far down that actually a T-shirt is not enough to keep me going. So yeah. I've got a coat on over it. Anyway, it's in the 80s here. I'm flying down to Utah tomorrow, spend the weekend camping with family at an undisclosed location. And uh, then the week after that is Sunstone, Bill. You just go from bunker to bunker, don't you? I do. I do. I have them all set up for me as I arrive. So don't, that forget, I don't want for anything. Don't forget, folks, Radio Free Mormons putting on a magic show at Sunstone. Oh, yes. That'll be Saturday, a week from Saturday, next Saturday, that. Uh, that. July 30th at 2.30 p.m., yeah. I believe. I'm going to guess that your, uh, your growing up being involved with magic, really adoring magic, obviously has been a huge help to that, but also your involvement with doing as well as exposing apologetics and knowing all the sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors that that does probably helps a little bit too. Yes, it does. I'm actually going to have to swear everybody who comes to the, 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 the show, uh, close the door, swear them to secrecy so that they don't reveal any of the secrets because we will be talking about some of the secrets behind mm -hmm. these magic tricks that I'll be doing and how they can have application to Mormonism. Awesome. I'm super excited. I, I hope, I'm sure they'll record that. I hope at some point to be able to watch that uh, with the wife. We'll put that on the big screen and enjoy your magic show at some future day. Well, we're very uh, excited to do that. Excited for tonight's show. Did you have anything else you wanted to say before I give the overview of tonight's show, Bill? 
No, not on this end of the show. Just a heads up to the audience. You will want to stick on once we have the main portion of the show done. There will be some post-credit things going on that you'll be want to be you'll want to be part of. Right. But absolutely. So we're yeah. going to have our guests on. We're going to talk about this great new book that's just now being released called Lighthouse. It's about Gerald and Sandra Tanner and their lives, their careers. And uh, we're going to have the author of that book, Ron Huggins, with us, as well as Sandra Tanner on the show tonight. We'll be talking about some of the great things in that book and give you the information as to how it is that you can order a copy for yourself. And then after that, we'll have a few phone calls, maybe three. You can call in, talk to Ron, talk to Sandra. That'll be done. Then we got to give you some updates on new and exciting things that have been happening since last week's show. Yeah. Yeah. A little, uh, little crime solving going on. Mm, yes. Featuring Bill Real. There we go. All right. So here, uh, if we can get our guests on, we're going to talk about Lighthouse. We've got a wonderful image of it. I know. There's Sandra. Sandra Tanner, how are you doing? Good. <laughs> it is great to see you tonight. Yeah. Glad to be here. And this other distinguished looking gentleman on the screen, that is Ronald V. Huggins, correct? Correct. And you, sir, are an author. Yeah. Uh, You've written a number of things before, haven't you? Uh, yeah, uh, not books, mostly articles. Uh, so, well, one book a long time ago, but we won't mention that. Oh, uh, okay. okay. Well, your name is not unfamiliar to me because I have heard of you before that I'm not sure I'd be able to pick out exactly that prior book or the articles, but you have written now a book that's just coming out. It's about the Tanners, Gerald and Sandra. Can you tell us a little bit about this book in a thumbnail sketch and then answer the burning question as to why it was that you are the man who wrote this book. Okay. Um, well, the book uh, started out in 2008. Uh, Signature approached me to uh, to do it. And it basically traces the life and career of Gerald and Sandra Tanner, very much uh, focusing not only on their personal uh, spiritual journey, but also on their um but on their research and kind of the building of their research over the years through from one subject to another, uh, publications, reprints, uh, various struggles and conflicts, uh, right through till at present, really. So we start, I mean, we start, actually, we start back when the Tanner family, even before the Tanner family is known to be in the U.S. and also uh, Sandra's uh, family, the angel side of the family. Marianne Angel was a Mormon when Brigham uh, married him. His first wife was a joined the church shortly before she died. But uh, Ron, when Brigham, Ron, you're saying that Brigham Young married him to another woman, right? Uh, Brigham Young was initially married to a non-Mormon. He was a non-Mormon. He was converted. His first wife converted also just before. She died, and then he married his first Mormon wife, Marianne Angel, which is uh, uh, Sandra's great, great, great. And uh, great. The, what? Two greats, not three. Two greats, right? And Sandra's great, great, great was also married to Brigham Young, Phoebe Angel. But uh, um, Marianne Angel is uh, the main player there. So 
uh, that's where I began. I began with the angels in the U.S. and then with the tanners and a little bit of background further back for that family and sort of trace trace their history through Mormonism down to the present and then go forward with, with the tanners themselves right through their primarily through their research. It's, it's largely a research biography mixed with a, a spiritual journey, uh, how they came to seek the true church, uh, disappointments of finally becoming Christians, and, uh, and then continuing on through their, their ministry all these years. Um, how did I get to become the author? Well, be Let me follow up on that with you, Ron, okay? Sure, Let me okay. follow up on that with you in a second with that question. But Sandra, shifting to you, how do you feel about having a book written about you by Ron Huggins? And it's coming out. It features you. It stars you. You look yeah. really good in this book. Well, uh, knowing the person that was going to write it was a great comfort because if it had been somebody that was real critical of me, I would have been on pins and needles. <laughs> what they were going to make of our story. We were involved in so many crazy events that one could have told it in a different tone. <laughs> uh, so I was glad to have a friend write it because it is controversial. <laughs> So Ron Huggins is a friend of yours. How long have you been friends? Since, uh, what did we figure, 2008 or something? No, it was all really? 2000. 2000, yeah. really, when we, we, I mean, that's when we visit on a regular basis anyway. Back in Salt Lake Seminary days, Salt Lake Seminary went down in 2008. So that's when I left. But we were, uh, we actually. Then. Yeah. Yeah, so. So before we leave Sandra, Sandra, this book is coming out right now. I understand that it can be pre-ordered on Amazon, but that people in the audience who are interested can order it directly from you. Is that correct? Yeah, we have it here in the bookstore, or they can just go to our website at utlm.org and order it over the internet from us, and we have it ready to ship out. It's going to be a few more days before the publisher releases it to Amazon. All right. So that's a great option. By the way, the utlm.org org website, that is Utah Lighthouse Ministry. Right. Lighthouse ends up being part of the title of your ministry and has been yeah. for how long? Since the beginning? No, since 83. Since 1983, but it gets picked up and used as the title of yeah. this book. Lighthouse yeah. is the title. Why right. is that significant to you, Sandra, to put it in the name of your ministry? And why does that follow over into the title of this book to Ron Huggins? Well, we were, well, when we first came up with a name, we were sitting around with some friends trying to figure out what would be a good name as we switched from being a business to a nonprofit organization. And we wanted something that showed people that it would probably have something to do with Mormonism without being uh, in your face, um, anti-Mormon title. So, so we put Utah in that gives you a clue. <laughs> and then lighthouse kind of gives you a clue that Mormons don't use the word lighthouse like Christians do. It's, I mean, it's not as popular for them. And so to Christians, that would be a clue that this is a Christian trying to bring light into a darkened state, Utah lighthouse ministry so it was i guess you say code <laughs> to christians 
that uh, this was going to help them understand the Mormons and reach out to them. To uh, someone outside of Christian community, it may not signal much at all to them, but from our perspective, it we hope we hope that it would clue them in uh, uh, that we weren't a Mormon writing a Mormon book. I see. Oh. Ron, how is it you used or chose to use Lighthouse as the title for the book? By the way, the entire title is Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism. Now, you're, I get to tell you, Ron, I'm so happy I get to tell you that you're muted. The reason I'm happy yeah. is because that's usually what people are telling me. No sound. Hey, well, the, the, what I go. keep getting is that the host is muting me. So um, I don't know what to say there. But uh, I wasn't I muting you and then telling you to unmute yourself. Right. Well, really, but something I can't speak here. for Bill, though. Uh, so what you can do is if we start having some problems, because it's, I notice the muting is coming on and off. I'll just get my other computer and you can talk to Sandra. But I didn't actually name the book. That was Barbara. Um, what's her what's her full name there, Sandra? Uh, at Signature. Uh, we discussed the crown. Yeah, we discussed the title and there was some disagreement, but I thought it was a good title. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, I had suggested other titles along the way, but yeah, it's a good title. We wanted something that showed that it was controversial, that it wasn't just a, a easy flowing story of a, a nice story of two people that went through life with a happy ending or whatever, you know, that this was a book about controversy. <laughs> Right, and that's the despised and beloved part. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, right. Okay. And of course, Gerald was the despised. You're the beloved. That, there you are. <laughs> okay, perfect. Now I understand the title completely. Ron, how is it you are the one who got picked to write this book? Oh, well, Gary Bergera, who uh, runs Smith Pettit, or did, he's, re he's retired just recently, um, came to, uh, wrote to me in 2008, and he said, uh, will you write a biography of the Tanners for uh, Smith Pettit, which is behind Signature Press? And uh, if you don't write it, we'll have this other author uh, write it. And I happen to know that this other author had was, in sort, of, was sort of hostile to the Tanners and uh, put sort of an um, unfair twist on everything. And uh, so, for example, their old use of capital letters in the in the earlier works where they were using a typewriter, uh, this fellow uh, interpreted that as uh, as Gerald raging and things like that that just gave a completely wrong picture. So I thought, yeah, you know, the the Tanner biography really ought to be written because it's it's such a remarkable story. And they were involved in so many things for, for a whole half century of Mormon history. And you really can't talk about Mormon history without talking about the Tanners or the Tanners without talking about Mormon history because they're they're an essential piece. So I, I just agreed on the spot. I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll do it, um, kind of dreading the task. And um, I wasn't in the state. Soon after that, I moved and taught in Kansas City for a few years. And there was no way I could do it there. I wouldn't have the Marriott archive available. I wouldn't have the church archive. I wouldn't have Sandra's files or just the books and uh, libraries here in Utah and the resources 
uh, because if you're going to do something on the tanners, you've got to do something on all the people that they're in conflict with and what they were saying and what their version of things were and uh, and talk to people who are still living here that uh, were part of the story and try and gather the rest that you can from people who remember. So uh, you said that was, you were dreading the task. Why is it that you were dreading it? Well, it's because it's so massive and uh, it's just uh, uh, every issue you can think of, the first vision, the, the Book of Commandments, the, the Christology of the Book of Mormon, the, the Mark Hoffman forgeries, which the Tanners were right smack in the middle of, and just the conflicts, the, the, um, the slanders, the, the fights, the issue of uh, race and priesthood. First thing Gerald ever wrote was a little paper on priesthood, I mean, on uh, blacks and whether the Book of Mormon was racist. And the very last thing he wrote uh, was uh, before when he was unable to write anymore, was trying to revise some of his earlier uh, work on on the church and race. So um, I just felt that the the Tanners needed to need, needed their story told. But if you did it, it was going to be a massive task. You were going to spend uh, years probably, and that was just so kind of a spur of the moment thing. I I agreed to it. And that was how many years ago? Fifteen. No, it was 2008. So, well, it's close to 15, 2008, 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I only re really be able, was able to start writing in 2014 when I returned to Utah. In fact, I returned to Utah so that I could be here with the resources and archives and Sandra's materials and her memory. And, and, uh, and that's when I began in earnest. Well, let me ask you one more question, then we'll turn to Sandra for a special story about Gerald as it regards the Salt Lake Rescue Mission. But you had written in your introduction, Ron, that you wanted, number one, to make sure that this entire body of material was engaged with in order to write the book, and you've done that. But the second thing that you wanted was you felt the book should be done right. What do you mean by right and why was that important to you uh well uh that's a kind of a big question but what i meant by right is that i wanted the book to reflect in as much as possible i didn't want to to show the tanners in a fake way i didn't want it to make them more you know i mean there are people who who virtually worship the tanners i i joke with sandra sometime about all the light bulb uh, flash burns that she gets with people coming by wanting to take their picture with her. And there are people that just exalt them to high heaven. But there's also people that, you know, consider them the devils of hell. And my point there was that you really have to, you have to pull yourself and your feelings out of, out of the picture. Uh, and to the point that you're not projecting uh, your own view of them. And this was a little difficult because obviously I'm a different person than Gerald and Sandra. I react to things differently. Things roll off their backs that, that would probably put me out of action. And things, uh, things uh, get to them that probably wouldn't get to me. And I'm, so it was a process. I wanted them to get a fair picture. I wanted to present what the world looked like and how they experienced uh, the events that I'm describing. 
And of course, I couldn't have done that without Sandra's uh, participation and kind of getting me on the right track because you use um, empathy as a writer to try and recreate what situations must have been like or conflicts or something. But you're you're going at it from your own own personal uh, personality uh, tendencies and so on. So it's not going to ring true for another person. So Sandra was really helpful there. And I mentioned before, I would have liked to have uh, have Gerald uh, as a sounding board at, at several points, uh, too. Yes. By the way, for everybody in the audience or anyone in the audience who is wondering about Gerald and what happened to him, can you tell us that in two or three sentences, Sandra? Well, in uh, the late 90s, Gerald started to show forgetfulness and um, confusion. And then it wasn't until 98 that we realized he had Alzheimer's. And then he lived on until 2006 with a, a, a over those eight, 10 years, a gradual decline in his faculties uh, to where at the end he could hardly talk, say maybe just one or two words. And I was feeding him, changing him. Uh, so it was a very sad decline uh, over those years uh, to see this beautiful mind just slip away to where he doesn't even know how to use a spoon. Yeah, you know, it's, just, it's a very sad disease. Very sad. You know, I have been somewhat aware of how brilliant Gerald was in so many ways, his reading of documents, his ability to figure out what is a forgery from what is not a forgery. He just seemed to be very, very intelligent and keenly smart that way. Yeah. But there's this other aspect of him that I was not aware of, and it had to do with an incident involving the Salt Lake Rescue Mission, and I was hoping you could tell our audience about that, Sandra. Uh, well, the, which incident at the rescue mission? Are well, you? let's just start with his volunteerism there. Okay. Uh, Gerald was not born with a sensitivity and uh, coziness feeling towards people on the street and uh, <laughs> but as he was uh, maturing in his Christian life he felt challenged that if he can't love the guys at the mission how valid is his love as a Christian and so it was um, his effort to learn empathy and he started going down and meeting with them. And at first, he, he was repulsed by them. I mean, they smell half of them drunk. You know, they're not necessarily people you want to hang out with, uh, as it, you know, those outward qualities and all. But as he met with them, he started to hear their stories and have empathy for them and see the tragedies that had come into their life. And so he developed a rapport with the men. He ended up helping in the office. He even wrote a computer program for them years ago to help with their bookkeeping, uh, which was very simple. I mean, I'm sure they have a much bigger, elaborate one now. But he tried to help them get modernized in the computer stuff. And so he became a fixture down there for years until he ran into some conflicts with uh, a man they brought on as a, um, a fundraiser and PR guy 
and Gerald became concerned that he felt there was something dishonest about the man. And he started hearing from a couple different people that they thought there was something wrong. Um, so he started doing some investigation on it and soon realized that the guy really was a con artist, was going out to women and get them to sign over money to the mission and it wouldn't go to the mission. So finally, um, it got too big a problem and it started to become more noticeable. But the rescue mission ended up believing this PR guy and feeling that Gerald was just running a vendetta. And they put Gerald out of the mission. My daughter, oldest daughter was working at the mission at the time as well. They put her out of the mission and just believe this man's terrible stories about Gerald. And then, but in the end, it turns out the guy was a crook. Gerald was right. <laughs> he finally was vindicated that uh, this all was just the opposite of what the men on the board thought. But the sad thing was that the board never apologized to him. No one ever said they were sorry, but they did ask him to come back and work at the mission again. This is my favorite part of the story right here, Sandra. Yeah, and Gerald said, well, he would come back, but he would not be on the board again before he had been on the board. And he said, I won't be on the board, but I will come back as just a support for the men. And Gerald, they gave him an office uh, where he could have prayer time. And he just would put out a sign, uh, you know, if you need prayer, come on in. And so these men would come in and you didn't even have to talk. You didn't have to say anything. You could just come and sit. And uh, if you wanted to pray, that was good. So Gerald developed a rapport with the men and had coffee with them every morning. And so it was, it ended up to be a beautiful thing. And by the time Gerald got too far to without Alzheimer's to go down anymore, uh, the men all had a love and empathy for the fact that Gerald had to leave. <laughs> so it ended up to be a sweet uh, event in Gerald's life. Yeah. Thank you for I'll, sharing that with us. Bill, did I'll you want say to say too. something? Yeah, just to, just to know, this obviously probably will come out at some other point in the conversation as well, but it, it seems as though the two of you, and, and maybe you'd give the credit to Gerald, because I know you tend to do that, but it seems like the two of you really had an intuition for seeing seeing things for that as they were. You know, the character of this guy in this situation, uh, Hoffman with some of the stuff he was doing, other times in Mormon history where you guys got involved, there's times where you cited against the critics because you thought yeah. uh, because the two of you thought like this side looks more credible you two seem to have a very good nose for what is real and what isn't yeah it's uh it's been a funny journey in that sense because at times we ended up uh offending some of our protestant friends uh, well, like when Gerald challenged the Hoffman documents, we had friends that were just beside themselves. We're like, what are you two thinking of? You know, we finally hit pay dirt with this proof against uh, the church. And uh, and you guys are coming out saying that they're all phony documents. So there were different events like that through the years where uh, it looked like we had changed sides. <laughs> but it was really a matter of trying to be... Um, uh, representatives of standing for truth. And I know it sounds corny, but 
we were concerned when we left Mormonism that we saw a lot of um, low-grade writing on Mormonism, that we were embarrassed about what material there was to give our families because so many of them were not credible. Uh, I mean, most of the book would be credible. And then they'd have a few things in there that, you know, I think, oh, dear, how did they come up with that? And so we had determined early on that we wanted to tell the story however it played out. We didn't want to engage in any kind of um, subterfuge on things. Most of the time, Gerald sensed people that were uh, frauds or less than honest or whatever. But there were a couple of times when I was the one leading the parade on that. And that's when DJ Nelson first came to us on the Book of Abraham. Sandra, Sandra, can I just stop you? I apologize for interrupting, but when Maven shows up on the screen, it's usually for a reason. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, so we are getting some a little bit of sound or noise feedback. Um, and so if somebody isn't talking, if we can have them muted. And uh, Ron, I have to say, sorry, I think uh, some of the background noise is from you. So if you weren't talking, I was the one that muted you. And then when it was time for you to talk, I think two or three of us were all trying to unmute you at the same time. Um, and so it just toggles. So I think that's what was happening there is everyone was trying to help. So it was getting turned on and off and on and off again. But yeah, just um, what uh, kind of noise is it? Is it a, a blowing noise or what kind of noise is it? It's like a car in the background or sometimes it's just a bit of feedback from your speakers. But I don't need you to do anything other than if, you, if you're not speaking, have your microphone muted and then just unmute it when you are coming on. Does that sound okay. good? So okay. It sounds like a fish tank to me. <laughs> Fishy stories. Yes. But you had just gotten to DJ Nelson. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, most people don't know about this guy. But back in the 70s? Uh, Sorry. Yeah, early 70s, probably, when everyone was scrambling to try to figure out what the papyri meant when the church got it from the Metropolitan Museum. And we have this fellow contact us who claims to be uh, a sort of an Egyptologist and he's a Mormon. And even though he believes Mormonism, he wants to uh, help us put out credible research on the book of Abraham because we don't know Egyptian and he does, and he can help us do a good job and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he had a story about how he had gone up and met with um, was it Tanner that gave him permission to see the papyri? Uh, uh, so, anyways, you were that muted. was his story. Yeah, but that was his story that yeah. uh, Ann Eldon Tanner had actually wanted him to translate it. Well, and he did give him uh, Tanner did give Nelson permission to uh, see the papyri. And, of course, that got questioned by a couple in Arizona that uh, later challenged D.J. Nelson about his uh, credentials. The Browns, I believe. The Browns, yes, that went on to write the books they lie in wait to deceive. I have which, them all. Yes. <laughs> which, which is about uh, D.J. Nelson and us and what Ed Decker and I don't remember who all. Anyways, they, they had a fun time with all of us. But when DJ Nelson came to our house and talked with us at the very beginning, 
I was leery of him because he seemed uh, there, there's a kind of personality you associate with a used car salesman and <laughs> that I do at least. Anyway, <laughs> he, there was something about his mannerism that said to me he was uh, putting on a performance. Or, I don't know just how to describe it, but it made me leery of him that was he all that he really claimed to be. Now, he obviously did know a lot of Egyptian. Uh, Gerald had been studying Egyptian. I mean, Gerald studied everything. But uh, uh, he even, my daughter was even studying Egyptian with him. They both had little cards. They wrote out uh, symbols and the, write the real word on the back. And anyways, Gerald had felt that he had studied enough that he at least could spot a fake, uh, you know, a man that was faking knowing Egyptian. And so Gerald tried to test him on a couple of different uh, documents, sentences, things where he knew some about what they were about and to see if Nelson knew enough to tell him the same stuff that he had read in books about these particular documents. And Nelson seemed to show enough knowledge that Gerald felt convinced that uh, he was the genuine article and, and could help him with these books. Wait a and second. We, Wait a second. Do yeah. we just come up with an instance where Gerald was not correct? Yeah. Oops. He, he okay. bought into Nelson all the way, and I'm saying, <laughs> this is too good to be true. I just don't feel comfortable on this. <laughs> of course, everyone else bought into Nelson, too. He oh, never yeah. bought into him, the, you know, the BYU guys. Um, and it turned out to be Gerald who finally exposed his false doctorate when he came up with one. Yeah. Well, what is the deal? I've never heard of this guy, and I never would have, except for the Browns book on him, Volume One: They Lie in Wait to Deceive, yeah. which I read when I got back from my mission. I was very happy to find out about uh, Doctor Doctor D J Nelson. And yeah. uh, but how is it that he presents himself as being pro Mormon, apparently to ingratiate himself with In Eldon Tanner and the BYU guys that Ron yeah. has mentioned? But on the other hand. It's like he's playing both ends against the middle yeah. when he's coming over to see you, Sandra. Yes, and that's why I was a little leery of him because it didn't seem like the tie with Mormonism was separated, broken enough to feel that I could trust him as um, not being feeding stuff back to the Mormon church. You know, I mean, it's one of the problems we face all through the years is people that would pose as former Mormon and still be cooperating with the church. So there was always a certain uh, reserve with us of, uh, is this person really on the level? Can we really trust what they tell us? Or is this some sort of trap? Um, but anyways, Nelson put out several pamphlets that are beautifully illustrated. Uh, and he did know a lot about Egyptian, but his claims about his own, training and everything are all bogus he just makes up all this he puffs things up and so he writes this on hotel paper from the hotel in egypt and that to give it you know this is my working address when i'm doing research in egypt you know and, and it's just hotel paper well anyone could have been to the hotel and picked up letterhead paper <laughs> but it, he did things to try to puff up his importance and his claims it sounds like he might be first cousins with Daniel C. Peterson. <laughs> yeah, probably went to the same mm -hmm. school. 
he's one of the most <laughs> colorful guys. He pretended to be uh, in the employ of the Egyptian uh, sheiks and and friends of the popes and uh, uh, and a, a explorer. He he claimed to be a Dead Sea Scrolls scholar and a, a bird scholar. And uh, he told a story about being trained in herpetology at uh, at the Boston Zoo. He was really just a remarkable uh, con man, but he was he must have been very smart because the stories all had sort of an, a plausibility. One of the ways he stayed good with the Mormons, uh, which he was a Mormon, but he believed the Book of Mormon. He seems to have because he had the, these very elaborate drawings trying to prove how how the Book of Mormon tie the ocean tides and everything could have worked with the Nephites coming over, and uh, he was a great draftsman. Uh, what else did he do? He did uh, Autobahn lectures on, uh, on, and he in the book, there's a picture of him in several different of his uh, get-ups, you know, with sort of as a Swiss uh, adventure and with his Lawrence of Arabia gear and uh, and just a, a, a real colorful character. Oh, also, he claimed to be a uh, an old fiction writer, a mystery story writer called Nugget Lance. You know, and I looked around trying to find evidence of him ever being Nugget Lance. Of course, he, he presented himself as being this great Dead Sea Scrolls scholar who was buds with all the, the uppity ups in Israel. Well, he was in Israel, but he was a cameraman for this television show called, I think it was the Seven League Boot. And so he was over there. He fabricated pictures of himself studying the Dead Sea Scrolls that he had cut out of books. You know, the, the manuscripts were there. Uh, and there's a picture of that in the book because he, he what he'd do is he'd cut a, cut a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls out of a book. And then he would take a match around the edges and then he'd lay it down and he'd show himself looking looking with an Israeli flag in the background. I'm, this is me at Hebrew University. And of course you knew it was a fake because that piece of, of uh, manuscript of, of uh, scroll was still connected on both sides in, in, at Israel Museum. It was never separate from the, from the scroll, but it was separate in the picture. And so he had it cut out and it was more damaged in the picture from his use, using his, uh, his matches than the original is to this day. So uh, he was, uh, he's worth a book himself. So he's colorful. DJ Nelson is a color, colorful fraud. Yeah. How is it that he gets mentioned in the book? How does he relate to the Tanners? Well, he was, well, we, were, we were publishing his manuscripts. Oh, yes. That's his translations. He was the first to translate. <laughs> He was the first to translate the uh, Joseph Smith papyri, and you know, uh, uh, Nibley was was behind it. He wanted it wanted it to happen. He was supportive of of D.J. Nelson, and when Nelson wrote something, uh, uh, Nibley was praising him in 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 the journals. Oh well, he finally got a credible historian, unlike these Tanners, you know. And uh, but it turned out that. Uh, uh, well, I think Klaus Baer of the University of Chicago said that D.J. Nelson had a grasp of Egyptian that was, you know, uh, that of a, a gifted undergraduate. 
And so there were several errors. And he had a way of bluffing his way out of errors in his translation that, you know, well, uh, hieroglyphs aren't fully understood. And, you know, there will be a little different disagreement on this and that. And uh, so he he had everybody bamboozled for a while. Yeah. Uh, he had this this promoter named uh, Newberg, who uh, who didn't exist. You know, I mean, he typed on the same little portable typewriter as D.J. Nelson. D.J. Nelson is a world famous explorer and expert in Egyptology. He was the curator of you know of uh, the press of the head of Arabia's library and all this stuff. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sometime I got to do a sunstone thing on Nelson. <laughs> Sandra, what happened when you found out that he was full of camel hooey? Well, Gerald called him up and confronted him. And uh, of course, he had all kinds of excuses on everything. And Gerald told him, well, I'm sorry, we will no longer publish your material. We're taking it all off the shelves. And I just can't trust you on this stuff anymore. And broke contact with Nelson. Did DJ Nelson do anything in response? No. Okay, so that was it. Yeah. Okay. Well, except good. the Browns kept hammering everywhere they could about we were frauds just like Nelson. And it was all a big conspiracy of us to embarrass the church or something. Well, he had kind of lured you in and tarred you with yeah. his brush, hadn't he? Yes. So you do, you, you do have to look at the chronology that I put in the book to show how the unfolding of his exposure came out. And it's a little different that the Browns say, you know, the Tanners ask uh, Sterling McMurrin to help them determine whether his doctorate was uh, legitimate or from just a degree mill. And so they were able to determine it was a fake. And um, and then once that happened, that it was all over. T.J. Nelson went on to to get into pyramid power and promised to uh, he made a bra that was supposed to help women avoid getting breast cancer or even heal it. And so, I mean. OK, not touching it. <laughs> Although right. I think I kind of just did with that comment. But anyway, anyway, there's a, of, there's a lot of storytellers with that last name, Nelson. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I think somebody just took a direct hit to the fuselage with that one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to mention Britt Metcalf here. All right. And the reason I want to mention Britt Metcalf is you can say anything you want to about him. But I was talking with him the other day about the Tanners and about Gerald and Sandra. And he said, you know, you can nitpick on the details and the fine points with what Gerald and Sandra Tanner have done over decades of research and publication. But he says, you cannot argue with the fact that on every important, significant issue in Mormonism that they dealt with, they were right every time. But what do you have to say about that, Sandra? And anything you might have to say about, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting mesmerized by by Ron taking off his clothes, but I guess it's, uh, I guess it's warmer where you are than it is where I am. But Sandra, how about, uh, Britt Metcalf, what do you think about him and what do you think about what he said? Well, I have to tell you about how I first met Brent. He came back from his mission to England and came in the bookstore to see me. Now, uh, he won't appreciate my caricature of him, but uh, 
he was like a Saturday Night Live impersonation of a puffed up know-it-all return Mormon missionary. Uh, he was just, I mean, he knew it all and he was in charge and, you know, and I was this dumb person and, uh, you know, anyways, he was, he was kind of um, blustery. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but anyways, uh, pompous. He, there was just a certain pompous attitude about him. Uh, yeah, we are getting better. <laughs> but uh, then he wasn't able to get into the university. Uh, he was trying to go to BYU, I think, and they didn't accept him. And that's his story. I don't know what all the problem was. Anyways, he got a job at church security where he worked nights. And he was buying everything we published. He was going through our book, uh, reading everything we referenced. And so he would come in and talk to me and it didn't take him long before uh, he's talking like someone that's been studying Mormonism for like three years. I mean, reading the documents, it was amazing how quickly he grasped all the problems uh, that it was just uh, phenomenal to me that a young man could so quickly get up to speed to talk about really detailed Mormon history. And of course he's continued that uh, throughout his life now of that very detailed research and, and he's very good at it. But along the way, he figured out that the Mormon church wasn't what it's claimed to be and they didn't have all the answers. <laughs> and uh, it, he came became uh, much more normalized uh, without the uh, pontificating. But in those early years, you had us, Wes Walters, Mike Marquardt, uh, Brent Metcalf, and then came Dan Vogel, I think. All of these, all of us converged at the same time in the world with these driven um, things to study Mormon history. And it, it's just been amazing to watch and see how everyone's lives flowered out from that in the 60s and 70s, when we were all just sitting around the kitchen table swapping uh, ideas, and uh, and yet everyone's gone on to become so proficient in Mormonism. It's, it's, it's just been a fun thing to watch. I always felt like I was uh, living out Sherlock Holmes, and I was his sidekick. And Gerald and Wes and um, Mike, a lot of times would just sit when Wes lived out of state, but when he would come to visit, the three of them would sit around the table and swap research. And it was just fascinating to watch it all blossom from one thing to the other. Oh, I, I heard about this. I read this. I, you know, and Wes was going to all the libraries and the East coast. And so he'd share what he was finding. Uh, so our lives have been involved with many of the crucial historians that developed over the years. Uh, so it, it's been fun to watch it all unfold. So Brent is a nice guy and uh, I really appreciate him. I know he's a very serious scholar. Yeah, he's, he's pretty nice for being so, what was it, obnoxious? Uh, pompous. Oh, pompous, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have a question for Ron here in a second, but just so you know, Sandra, there's a little known, but it's an up and comer of a Mormon scholar named uh, 
Dan Vogel. Yeah. Dan Vogel. He's actually watching the show right now. I don't know if you've heard of him, but if you have, do you have anything you'd like to tell him since he's listening? Well, I really appreciate you, Dan. You did such great research early on with the Indian Origins book and the religious seekers. Those were so important at such an early period of Mormonism that uh, they still have stood the test of time. I think they're great books. Well, and he's done great books since, but uh, just so young, so early to have done that extensive research. It's just wonderful. It is amazing. Uh, when I, I haven't read the book, of course, but uh, actually I avoided the book when I was in, <laughs> in, the, in my 20s because I didn't want to read it. But, um, but when I found out that that was the same Dan Vogel who wrote that book back that long ago, yeah. and I just thought, how long have you been doing this? And from what an early age, it is amazing. Yeah. yeah. He's a genius. Now, Ron, coming back to you, because there's something that goes on. We talked about this last night during our hour and a half conversation. Sandra is always, excuse me, at least when I've been talking with you or seeing you talk, Sandra, it's Sandra and Gerald Tanner, but talking to Sandra, it's always Sandra shining the spotlight on Gerald. That's how I see it anyway. Sandra is very self-effacing in this. I think we saw a little bit of it from her just then as well, like being the sidekick and watching everybody else. She characterizes herself more as Mrs. Hudson than as Sherlock Holmes or one of the people at the table. But I asked you, Ron, last night and asked Sandra too, what is it, Ron? Can you explain to the audience from your investigation and your study and your book what it was that even though we acknowledge Gerald's brilliance, but what was it that Sandra brought to the table in this companionship that Gerald did not? Uh, Gerald was a hermit. You know, he was a researcher. He was uh, not a very not a very fetching writer. He's a very detailed writer. Sandra was always a very clear communicator, a very coherent uh, presenter, very charming and good good in debate and discussion with other people, doesn't get flustered. And uh, so she was always the, the public face of the ministry. And she still is. I mean, there would be no lighthouse now if Sandra had been the one to pass away. Gerald would certainly not probably have been able to carry it on. I can't imagine. Mm. And so um, so really, they were two, two halves of a whole yeah. um, to where uh, the unique research was being done by Gerald and kind of giving coherence to it, the synthesizing. Uh, I mean, if you read the newsletters now uh, that Sandra's produced, they are uh, coherent. They're very uh, uh, comprehensive presentations. And with Gerald, it was all these these little details and just tracing everything out. And uh, uh, so I just think it was a kind of a unique uh, uh, combination, Gerald and Sandra. I don't imagine that either of them alone would have uh, would have come together to create the Tanners as we know them. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Sandra here in a second. But Ron, while I have you speaking, could you tell us about what it was that you mentioned earlier uh, in their earlier productions, the Tanners' early productions, famously Mormonism, um, Shadow, or Reality? Yeah right? Huge book, but it is typeset 
where you open it up and words come flying out at you that are all capitalized, they're underlined. And this is something that the person who was going to be the author of the book before you stepped in and took over had taken issue with, with the tanners. And I know that that was something that I think I had heard about as a complaint about their book, which I stayed very far away from as a good Mormon. I'll tell you that. But I knew that there were words that were um, all capitalized, all bold-faced. And frankly, in Under the Banner of Heaven, when Andrew Garfield goes out to the garage and he opens that book, your book, yes. by the way, the red book, I missed the cover at first. If they showed the cover first, but he opened it up. And even from kind of a distance where you can't see the words, I knew that was your book because I could see the typesetting. Yeah. So can you respond to that, Ron? Uh, to what? Uh, that, to that the, criticism of the early publications yeah, of the okay. as well, yelling or shouting or being angry. Well, they, it wasn't that. There was two concerns, I think. One was, it, uh, which I didn't talk about last night, but the fact is, is that there was a question and there's always the accusation, the quick accusation of dismissal. Well, you didn't quote it in context. And so Gerald wanted to put everything in context as for this. So you'd have the, the larger context and then you would have underlining what was important to Gerald. Now, Gerald was not uh, well. he had one year of college with uh, remedial English and he patterned his his style after what he saw printed by James Wardle and by Pauline Hancock, which Pauline Hancock was the small, the leader of the small uh, uh, basement church in Independence, Missouri. And she did like a weekly column. And if you look at her weekly column, uh, you'll see uh, in, in the Independence paper, the same style. And so he was just picking this up from his teachers, really. He was copying what they were doing. And both of them, to imagine that James Wardle was a raging, angry individual, he was a, he was a big jokester. And Pauline was this joyous, beaming person. And so it's, it's, it doesn't have anything to do. Uh, and I think people still think, like, if you use caps and emails, why, why did you get mad at me? So... Uh, but in those days, there wasn't, you couldn't just click on uh, italics. You And so he would use those for italics. Right. And that was another thing that I was not aware of, or I hadn't put two and two together on, is that at the time that these were being published by the Tanners, it is kind of a shoestring operation. Right. And they're typing these up. They don't have word processors. Right. They don't have the ability right. to italicize words, which would be a more standard method of emphasizing words or phrases. And when those became available with uh, with personal computers, then they started using them back in the 80s, whenever you see the shift as you go through. I might even mention in the book or the original book when they actually shifted over. Okay, so I've got to ask you, well, actually, I'll come back to you on that one and go to Sandra on this one. Is that what I've understood from our conversation last night? And this is once again, focusing on what you brought to the team, Sandra is that Gerald focused more on history and maybe historical documents, and you focused more on doctrine. Right. Is that correct? Yes, because originally that had been the issues that had been brought to me. My mother read Brody and started questioning Mormonism, and she sent me to seminary to ask questions, but they were questions relating to the doctrine of God. 
And when we started, after Gerald and I got married and we're studying with Pauline and uh, with different books that we were reading at the time, I started focusing more on the doctrinal issues. Gerald felt that he could make a stronger case that a Mormon would have to listen to if he could show the historical problems. He felt that doctrinal issues led you into too much, well, this is the way I see it, or that's the way I see it, or my impression is this. And it, it became a more nuanced discussion. And it was hard to pin a Mormon down on uh, the doctrinal issue. So he just thought, well, I'm just going to deal with uh, historical issues, black and white. Either he said it this way on June 4th, or he didn't, you know. And so Gerald just focused on things that he could lay out a case that they couldn't refute. Whereas with doctrine, you could waffle around stuff. Sandra, I love you dearly, but I must be brutal. Once again, you've done it. You focused all of this on Gerald. And can you tell us about what you did with the doctrine? Because you're very busy giving presentations at churches and things like that, right? Uh, well, yes, I also had three kids to raise and a household to take care of. Somehow Gerald's calling didn't extend to a lot of those areas. Right, <laughs> row. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, Gerald did do the bulk of the research and he had a nose for research. Uh, he had sent me on errands. Uh, I'd go up to the University of Utah and plow through books for him and uh, read a bunch of stuff, but I wouldn't have known the book to have gone and read but he would send me up to get photocopies out of books and to look up references and things for him, uh, which I enjoyed. I mean, it was okay, but, uh, but he really was the one that came up with the ideas of what needed researched. Uh, Gerald was um, very shy, but he also was very uh, set in his opinions. And <laughs> so uh, we were human and we struggled on various areas of making life work, uh, raising a family, doing research. And Gerald so engrossed. Uh, I mean, we'd go on a camping trip and Gerald would bring along a lawn chair and three books. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, other, but if you want to go for a hike, he would always go for a hike. Mm. So, Gerald is starting to sound to me like Fred McMurray in The Absent-Minded Professor. Yes. And that's why when he started into Alzheimer's, we just joked that he was like the absent-minded professor. And, uh, and I used to comment to the kids, well, you know, it's like they say about Einstein. Uh, he could never find his umbrella. And, and that was Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you, you know, we have so much material to go over. We could be here another two hours. We can't, unfortunately. We've got to bring this to a close okay. before we have people call in to ask you their questions. And I wanted to give each of you, Ron and Sandra, the opportunity to answer this question. What is it that you are really glad made it into this book? And or what is it that did not make it into this book that you wish had? Going to you first, Ron. Okay, and the first, I'm very glad that I was able to put together the 
early days where, uh, especially Sandra's interaction with Joseph Fielding Smith, I feel like his response to uh, this 19-year-old girl asking an on honest question. Can you tell really, us what that was really quickly, Ron? What? This 19-year-old girl's interaction with Joseph Fielding Smith? Yes, it's where she was asking why there was a change in uh, Andrew Jensen's history to change uh, the First Vision account, which talked about an angel appearing to Joseph at the First Vision, and then laid a later reprint, supposed reprint, but it was actually a modification, had it as Jesus. And so uh, Sandra's question to Joseph Fielding Smith in this letter that was sent by her bishop was, could you explain why this change is there? And Joseph Fielding Smith comes back. Oh, this this woman is not interested in truth. She's just if she just pray, God would give her the uh, the right answer. And she just listening to people who are fighting the truth and so on. And uh, the thing is, is that when I was reading that, I just thought, you know, the, the, the only people that the Mormon, the LDS institution has to blame for uh, the Tanners is themselves. If, you know, if there was a little courtesy there at the beginning or a little uh, openness, uh, then, you know, because Sandra could be tell, told, Sandra wasn't cowed. She wasn't, she's a strong personality. She wasn't like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, she just thought, well, he's, he's just, you know, not giving me a straight answer. And you see that again, this process of, of uh, uh, trying to get the answers, being shut down and pushing harder and then being resisted. And it, the whole pattern of their life is driven forward by this, action what i wish would have gotten in there maybe uh it's difficult to say but one one example would be it would have been nice if the story of the uh between behind about eugene england there was a feeling that the tanners were somehow responsible for eugene england's um, um uh, getting into trouble and that uh was not really uh, a fair um, assessment, and it would have been nice to set the story straight in as much as possible, so you know the England family might feel better. Um, Are we talking about when he got in trouble for coming down on the church when the I'm sorry, the SCMC, the Strengthening Church Members Committee existence got revealed in the early '90s, or was it something else? I think it was where was it the I, the um, the Bruce R. McConkie letter admitting that. Brigham Young uh, taught Adam God, was that? Right. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, the Tanners reprinted it and uh, and the hammer came down on, uh, on that was one of the things I guess the hammer came down on England for. Right, because he got it from Bruce R. McConkie. Now, when he got it from Bruce R. McConkie, was it already stamped, do not copy on every page? It's my understanding that someone put that on afterwards, but I haven't seen the documents to be able to confirm that. But someone told me that was added by someone else later. Well, I don't mean to catch you flat-footed with the question, but how did that come into your possession, Sandra? Are you able uh, to tell us? It was a miracle. <laughs> uh, it was either an angel or Jesus. Who yeah, delivered. Well, <laughs> um, I really don't remember. Now, Ron, do you remember what the scenario was on that? Well, it, well, I, I seem to generally remember. I mean, the document trade, the Mormon underground at that time, there was documents coming all going all over the place. The Tanners would be like the 50th person to get this document. There was uh, 
what was his name? Grandpa Strack yeah. had a bookstore down in Provo, and he would let he any document he got, he'd let you photocopy for the copy price of the of the uh, um, of the photocopy. And then there were just people trading documents all the time. And so it could have come from anywhere. It could have come from, uh, uh, well, uh, it could have come from the polygamist uh, Robert Black. He was a trader in documents. Ehat was a trader in documents. I I'm mean, hearing it, a lot of could-ofs, Ron. Do you know where it actually came from? I do not. Okay. Uh, often the tanners would not know, <laughs> and nobody else would. Um, okay. I tried to trace uh, trace the Ehat doc. One of the things in the book is where I'm trying to trace where the Ehat, uh, uh, the the who was he, Clayton the diaries. diaries. What? Clayton. Clayton diaries. And just read in there for the tortuous history of, of the handing around of that document. And there, I think you got it from Kurt, um, the Waldron or something like that. I can't remember yeah, his name. Waldron. Yeah, can't. It, that was where the Tanners got that one, but uh, I I don't know who he got that one from. I think it may have been um, Scott Fallring or something. But it was it. Everybody had copies of it before the Tanners had it. Yeah, that was what was so crazy on all this. Too, is we we would get blamed for any fallout from these things, and would be the twentieth person down the road before that got a copy. I mean, everyone would be why you could have a copy before us, but we'd get blamed for it. And didn't they just sometimes slide it under the door or leave it? Uh, yeah. you know? Yes. <laughs> there we are. Oh my goodness. Young. <laughs> We've had specifically uh, requests to see uh, your 19 year old self. I don't know if this is you at 19, but it's, it's the earliest I've got. <laughs> well, no, that's, um, uh, that has to be after 1964 because that's when we moved into that house. So somewhere anyone, around 65. Yeah, that's the best I can do, folks. Did anyone ever tell Gerald that he resembled Raymond Massey? I don't know that they did. <laughs> okay, well, I'll be the first. Well, the funny thing with Gerald is before we got married, he was a real spiffy dresser and just was so meticulous in how he looked. He even told me how to press his pants when we got married. Uh, so particular. And then he ends up looking so frumpy the rest of his life. <laughs> With baggy pants and a bunch of Kleenexes in his pockets and everything. So that all changed. Well, here's and a news flash. We all do that, Sandra. It's still real cute, though. <laughs> I'll tell you, I just looked up Raymond Massey, and you nailed it, RFM. But uh, do we get a picture of that up there? I love it. Oh, I can, I could probably find one, but it takes Raymond Massey, famous um, actor from the what forties? Yeah, yeah, 40s. not necessarily older years, but in his younger years, there was a very I saw a resemblance. I just, I just want to say as we're kind of wrapping up here, Sandra, um, you know, for the last decade, I've been doing podcasts, and I, I'd like to think I've made a difference in this in this arena. And when I think about you guys doing it the way you did before the internet, I was telling RFM on the phone, uh, either that wasn't this morning, maybe, and just talking about how much work goes into accumulating a mailing list and printing off these pages of pamphlets and making books. And I, I just would have just moved on from Mormonism and not bothered. It was too much work, but you guys really did this 
the hard way and you really made a difference. Yeah. Um, you know, of all things, folks, if, if you really enjoy the backstory of things that we do in the, in today's moment, my two cents is you ought to know about the Tanners and all the work that they've done. They really, before there was an internet, they really did the work that podcasts are doing today in um, shining a light on Mormonism so that it has to be accurate and transparent as much as they know how to be yeah. and, uh, and helps the church. I think whether they like it or not helps the church to be more honest. Yeah. And I just got to congratulate you for doing this at a, in a day and an age when it wasn't easy and uh, kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. So grab the book. And I hear what you're saying, Bill, it was so much more difficult, but you tell these stories about people in your house and going down to the barbershop with that fellow. It just sounds so much more romantic yeah. and adventurous and fun in your day. Some yeah. days it was fun, uh, but some days it was just a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when the uh, uh, Anthem transcript came out, Mark's Anthem transcript. Mm-hmm. I spent days at the University of Utah going through all kind of books on different alphabets, trying to figure out what was used to make that anthem transcript, the squiggles on there and all. And there were talks about, well, maybe it was uh, some Indian group uh, up in New England area. Maybe it was uh, their writings. Oh, I'm going through all of this Indian stuff. And someone says, well, it might have been Masonic. So I'm going through all these books on Masonic script and magic script. Uh, it just days and days of going through these books. It's just a very intense kind of research on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, very labor intensive. Absolutely. And doing legal research was similar back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Fortunately, I went to law school right at the time that LexisNexis was coming in. <laughs> yeah. I would have loved to have had the internet way back. (laughs) Yes. Even a computer would have been such a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) I hear Hugh Nibley felt the same way. Yes. (laughs) Well, do we have anybody who wants to call in to talk to Ron or Sandra with questions? I think we have time for three callers. Is that okay with you, Bill? Yeah, yeah. We've got one on the line. I'll just announce the phone number. So hopefully we get another call or two in the meantime, but 662 Mormons with an S on the end or 662-667-6667. And then there's instructions on the screen for international callers. Uh, The person on the screen, I think on the call screen is Kathy. Kathy, you're on Mormonism Live. Are you there? I am here, and I'm so grateful that I got to get in because I wanted to, first of all, tell all of you thank you for raising the consciousness of the planet. And uh, Sandra, many years ago, I stopped in to see you. After my brother passed away, I cared for him for years, and he spoke of you constantly, you and Gerald. And um, you told me when I said his name, you said, oh, yes, he was on our first date with us. His name was Bruce Palmer. Oh, wow. There is and a. You to, I remember Bruce. Yeah. yeah. And you used to. Yes. And you used to have meetings in the barbershop or something. And um, we all thought that he was crazy for years and years and years. And then as I grew and aged and got a little bit more specific, I found out that he knew 
a lot more than we did. And I want to thank you so much for everything that you have done for all of us. Well, thank you. Very nice. Thank you so much, Kathy. All right. God, God bless you guys. God bless you. Thank right. you. Thank you. And there are a couple of other calls. The screening thing may not be working, but we should be able to get them on. A uh, caller, your name? Tim. Tim? Yes. Tim, you're on Mormonism Live. What's on your Ken. mind tonight? Ken? Okay, I want to set the record straight on the Adam God letter and the Clayton Diaries. Okay. There was a story in the 70s press <laughs> about the Clayton Diaries. Scott Faring was sharing an office in the religion building with Andy Ehat. And Scott got into Andy's desk and copied the Colton Diaries and the typescript of the Clayton Diaries. And that's how you got your copy, because either Scott or somebody else took it up to you guys. Now, the Adam God letter, okay. Jay Bell shared an office with somebody who shared an office with Eugene England. Uh, and that, book that is letter that came book. to Eugene. Pardon? Oh, I'm just saying that, that story's in the book. And you're you're correct. Uh, it took, went through a few more intermediaries, though. Right, right, right. But the, the, the Adam, the Adam God. Okay, so Gene was in England or over. He was in study abroad, and the letter came to his office. And Jay opened the letter up, made I'm a sorry, copy. Tim. Tim. He put a stamp. Yeah, Are you there? Yes. Can you, um, I couldn't understand. Yes. Somebody opened the letter up. You, did, Jay? Who okay. was it? Jay Bell. Okay. Jay Bell. Okay. Jay Bell. He passed away in 2003, but Jay was one of my best buds at BYU. Um, okay. Jay copied the letter and he took it to, he, he made a copy and he Stamp, that stamp on it is in green ink. You can see it in his papers at the U of U archive. So he went to the 70s press office, showed it to Ron. Ron went downstairs to Kinko's, and Grandpa's books was right below their office and next to Kinko's. And he made a copy, and then I think Ron gave it to you, Sandra. So that's how that letter got out. Okay, so I, I thought there were more stuff. The truth about how that went. Yeah. No, I think it was. I think it just went directly from Jay to Ron to you, but it may, maybe Gary. I don't know. But I thought it was Ron who gave it to you. So what what I'm hearing you say, Tim, is that you are personally involved with these incidents, so you know this from your own experience, right? I was there. I was one of the Xerox priests who shared documents. Yes, I worked in the BYU archives. I copied a lot of stuff from the archives and gave it to Ernest. So Ernest could share with people. I gave stuff to the Tanners, and I gave stuff. I spread things all around. It was me and Jay and Scott and a few others. To we'd go and we would copy these documents and we spread them out. We gave them to as many people as we could. I used to slip things under Mike Mike Quinn's door when Mike wasn't there. I used to slip envelopes full of stuff to him. <laughs> really? So back in the eighties, yes. Did yeah. any of the stuff you slipped under Michael Quinn's door ever make it into Michael Quinn's publications? 
he credits me in most of his books for giving him information. <laughs> so he knew who slipped it yeah. under his door, I'm guessing, eventually. Oh, yeah. 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 I told Mike, I said, hey, I'm going to share stuff with you and let me know if you need it. Yeah. This is what I'm I talking do. about. How exciting, how fun, how clandestine, how cloak and dagger. Yeah. <laughs> it was great time. Let me tell you, it was it was fun. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for Ernest calling in and just, setting the record just, straight on those two incidents. Yeah, I just wanted to do that because I was there and I know exactly how it happened. And then the letters that Gene sent to McConkie, he was also overseas study abroad, and Jay made a copy of that letter. And that the typescript of that letter is in the, the files I sent you. In the Adam Gott files, the last entry in the Adam Gott files is that letter. From the, the, the one before that is the McConkie letter, and the one after that is Dean's letter to McConkie. So well, Tim, as long as we have you on the phone, letter. can you answer this question? Maybe. Gene England writes his response to Bruce R. McConkie's letter, correct? Correct. How does Jay Bell get a hold of Eugene England's response to Bruce R. McConkie. Because Gene was overseas and he'd written the letter and it was in the same desk where he got the McConkie letter from. Can you explain what that means? It was in the same desk as he got the McConkie letter from? Yeah, the, the, the mail came in and in Gene Utah or England? In Utah. Okay. And then he went on study abroad. And while he was on study abroad, Jay, went, Jay was sharing the same office and he saw the letter and he made a copy of it. I well, what about the, you're saying though, Eugene England wrote back to McConkie. How would that fit in? That, that he wrote, he wrote to McConkie explaining that he had no part basically in spreading the letter. Well, then how would that? Right. And I think what we're trying to get at, Tim, is I think we understand how it was that Jay Bell got a hold of the Bruce R. McConkie letter to Eugene England. But how was it that Jay Bell got a hold of right. the Eugene England letter back to McConkie? Because, like I said, Jay was sharing this office with Somebody, I don't know who it was, I don't remember, but the England response was there and he found it and he made a copy of it. Well, so the, made a copy you're, of you're, talking about, letter, you're talking about two different occasions then. He correct. had access two about different two times. years apart or so. Mm. Okay. Yeah, two different occasions. Thank goodness. Yeah. Did Jay Bell know it's a federal offense to I, open a letter that's not addressed to you? <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> he just couldn't resist, could he? From the office of Bruce R. McConkie. Uh, can I ask a question, Tim, um, about the yeah. um, Clayton Diaries? Uh, I want you know, because there's a gap between the whole business of, of Scott giving it to to Ernest and then and then it getting taken, gathered back by Ehat. How did it get to Kent Walgren? Do you know how, who gave it to Kent Walgren? 
Um, I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, that was a gap for me too. I, I couldn't find out. Okay, I well, can see his face, but I don't remember his name right now. Okay, thanks. So that is an I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's an I, I can see the guy's face, but I don't remember his name. Yeah. All right, Tim, thank you so much for calling in. This has been great. I'm so glad that you you answered those questions. <laughs> anytime, guys, anytime. Okay, all right. Thank you so Take much. Care. And then uh, last call we've got, uh, I think it's going to be Katie. She said, so the caller, the call screener uh, statement, because all it does is it takes what she says and then it puts it into a text form and it says she wants to spank Sandra. But uh -oh. I think it's she wants to thank Sandra. So Katie, are you on the line? <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Awesome. You're I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. You're on Mormonism Live. What do you have for, uh, for Sandra and Ronald? This is Katie, the spanker? This is to well, thank her, but it, it took it as thank her. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to thank her for her work uh, back in the day. Um, uh, I am I am not a Mormon. I have never been a Mormon. I am an ex-Baptist Christian. Um, I wanted to I wanted to know if she had any pushback from her family in her work, uh, perhaps if they were Mormons, because it, in my in my research for certain things as an, as a now atheist, uh, my mother texted me a while back and said, you're too smart to be an atheist. Why don't you come back to come back to church? And I wanted to know if she had anything similar like that. Uh, well, I had a lot of problems with my family when I first left from uh, my mother who was already leaving Mormonism mentally but she didn't want me to leave Mormonism because she knew it would put me outside of the family and my community. And so her reasons for pushback on leaving were not to do with belief or anything that way. My grandpa, who was fanatic, um, gave me a lot of pushback because he really believed it. And he was a carbon copy of Joseph Fielding Smith. I mean, there was just one truth. And, um, I had a lot of problems with him. Uh, my girlfriends and friends didn't know what to make of it, and they were too young to uh, want to be invest invest the time to try to figure out the kind of things that were bothering me. And when they would ask their parents about me talking about changes in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, that they'd say, "Oh, well, that was just problems with the typesetter, or what you know." And just, they wouldn't know anything, and they'd just make up an excuse. So, yes, we had a lot of pushback early on from our families. One advantage Gerald and I had is, uh, number one, we did this together. So we had mutual support. Uh, we didn't live in Utah at the time, and that helped because all our neighbors were something else, and they didn't care where we went to church or didn't go or whatever. Um, so there were certain, and, and we were young. We had not spent a lifetime investing in Mormonism. And I think the more years you put into it, the harder it is to step away, the harder it is to find peace with your family because they've had years of expectation. Uh, you've been raising your kids Mormon. And you know, just so many tentacles that go into the Mormon community from your life that it's much harder the older you are 
to extract yourself from it. But being young um, and naive, we just <laughs> we just thought everyone wanted to know the truth. And so when we told them the truth, of course, they'd all just fall right in line with us. And uh, that was kind of a wake-up call. <laughs> everyone didn't want to hear about what we were studying. But we were young enough to make new friends, to have a new career, to a new place to live. I mean, it just made a situation where we had an easier time living. Not to say it was easy, but it was not the gut-wrenching problem of a 50-year-old suddenly telling his wife, I don't believe Mormonism anymore. Um, and so I'm very thankful that I didn't have to go through that difficult a transition. It would have been very hard. So, <laughs> so Katie, Katie, thank you very much for calling in. Thank you. You know, I was reading a book the other day about Baptists, and I finally realized why it is that Baptists are so strongly against premarital sex. Uh oh. Because they're afraid it will lead to dancing. Aha, uh -huh. yes. <laughs> Mormons worry that it'll lead to coffee. <laughs> good one. Very good repost there, Sandra. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Are you a Baptist, by the way? Do you classify? Do you, are you a Baptist? No, I'm yeah. not a Baptist. Okay, Ron? Well, yeah, I'm actually a Baptist. No, how come, oh, uh, how come Sandra laughed at that joke and you didn't then? Oh, I smiled at it. It's pretty oh, okay. good. I mean, okay. the, you, you have to realize there's different kind of Baptists, and, and some Baptists actually don't mind dancing, you know. Those would be the so, ones from the north? <clears throat> no, actually, you know. Uh, it, well, I mean, it's the Baptists are there's so many different kind of Baptists. Mennonites are Baptists, yeah, you know, Baptist, so yeah. so you really have to, uh, you know, I certainly like we when we were in Niagara Falls, there was a group of singers, men singers. They came to our church and and uh, the their leader was saying something like, well, you couldn't believe what we saw down down at the falls. We saw a man and a woman kissing in public. And, uh, you know, so there are there are groups of Baptists who are like that, but uh, there are groups of Pentecostals who are, who are like that and uh, uh, several other denominations. Well, I'll tell you a story sometime about my parents and their difficulties in adopting a child from a Baptist agency in Texas back in the 1950s. Some oh. other time. <laughs> All right. Question on screen. Um, Allison wants to know if you would have uh, found your way out um, without Gerald. What do you think? Yes, I would have uh, because my mother and my aunt were already so involved in research. My mother had already written letters to the church historian's office. She had already been in contact with Pauline Hancock in Independence, who had been fostering research and challenges to Mormonism. So my mom was work, uh, traveling in circles that would have kept her running into the historical research. So I don't think that, that she would have left me alone. She, I mean, my high school years were all arguing with my mom over things that she thought I ought to ask the institute or seminary teacher and get me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, there was too much discussion with my mom and my aunt to think that I could have remained a Molly Mormon. My mom forced me to think, uh, challenged me to think. And so I'm sure I would have left, I would have had a very different life. I would have never gone into research on my own, but I would have researched enough to leave. 
Okay, great. There may have been a little bit too much Brigham Young in you to stay yeah, in this church. <laughs> no, too much Marianne Angel. <laughs> a, little, a little more feisty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Sandra and Ron, for coming on the show yeah. tonight. I want to wish you all the best with your book. Once again, that book is Lighthouse, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, Despised and Beloved Critics of Mormonism by the author, who you see on the screen, Ronald V. Huggins. And once again, you can pre-order that at Amazon. You can order directly from uh, Sandra's ministry, which is utlm.org. Yeah. And you can maybe get it faster through Sandra than from Amazon yeah. right now. Right. right now you can. <laughs> and that's saying something. That doesn't yeah. happen a lot. No. And you get probably a little bit more money from this if it gets ordered directly from you, right, Sandra? Yes, and you can also oh, request to have it autographed. Oh, love it. Perfect. Does that cost so, any folks, extra? Please. No, no, we that's a perk. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So okay. get your autographed copy of Lighthouse today from Sandra Tanner. Thank you once again for coming on the show, Sandra and Ron. Yes. Yeah, thank you for having us. Good yeah. night. Good have night. All right. Great well, conversation. We're almost at the close of tonight's show, but there have been things that have been happening this past week. Dang it. And we wanted to bring our audience up to speed on those. There is, in fact, let me uh, let me put this one up. And uh, so a couple things happened. First off on ex-Mormon Reddit, I can find the image here. Let me um, pull that off for just a moment. Get rid of the bookstore. I'll show you the image. So here's the image. Somebody on ex-Mormon Reddit posted this, and what you end up seeing is that this was three different committees of the church, but down here is the Strengthening Members Committee. Um, oh, which, that's where you can see their names through it. Look at that. It wasn't quite blurred out enough. Oh, no. And, and by the way, like I looked Pearson, up- Bowen, and Bragg. Yeah, so I looked up what the CCC means, and it has something to do with being confidential, like confidential, confidential, confidential. But uh, I thought it was on the Civilian Conservation Corps. Yeah, something like, yeah, it could be that too. A little New not. Deal humor. So I ended up republishing this on Facebook and I put, I found the three pictures of these three brethren and I put them on Facebook as well. Not in the right order, by the way, but I didn't, I wasn't really care, caring about assigning them the right order, but I had the three folks there and, um, Somebody complained and said, maybe I was doxing these folks, but we already know these three folks are leaders in the LDS church. Telling mm -hmm. people what committee they serve on isn't doxing somebody. Um, but what happened was- It's a strange was, thing that you have to tell people what committee they serve on in the first place, Bill. Why wouldn't yeah. that be a matter of public knowledge? It's just a church. It's just a church, right? Yeah. So uh, me putting this on Facebook, there were several comments and things on it, but uh, one person turned up commenting and it was a person by the name of Trevor Bowen. And then behind the scenes, uh, Trevor Bowen ended up sending me a Facebook message. And at first I didn't know who this was, but notice the middle name. Shane, is that the name of his dad? His dad's name is Shane Bowen. So Trevor Shane Bowen um, writes me on Facebook messenger and he says, if you hurt my dad, I will pay it back. I am vicious. Now, I don't know how mentally, you know, stable this person is. I don't know whether they are uh, going to drive, you know, from wherever they're at to Southern Utah and sneak in my house in the middle of the night and take me out. I don't know if they're going to, I don't know, like things happen. Yeah. 
And so the I mean, next he is day, vicious. yeah, and that's a pretty Still strong word. That's a strong word. Like if I was like gonna go after somebody, vicious would be like the extreme end of like threatening someone. I know it's like Tom Cruise in Top Gun. I'm yeah. dangerous. But you know me, I'm not intimidated easily, RFM. So <laughs> the uh, the next day, I reached out to the church and uh, called uh, Shane Bowen's personal secretary who, by the way, doesn't even know that he serves on the Strengthening Church Members Committee. It's so secret that Shane Bowen's personal secretary at the church, because he's a 70 in the first quorum leading the Strengthening Church Members Committee, she doesn't even know he's on the Strengthening Church Members Committee. By the way, how does she, know, how does she not know that? All she has to do is look at the letterhead on the stationery where it says Strengthening Church Members yeah, Committee. It, do, it doesn't say that. It's confidential. Oh. Okay. So, by the way, we have that we have that audio, and I we could play that for everybody if we wanted to tonight. Um, but I, I asked the church, and I you'll see if we do play the audio, you'll see I really did try to say like, look, like this is unhealthy what this adult son of Shane Bowen is doing. Um, I'd like to try to resolve this behind the scenes. I would really like if you know Shane Bowen, the father, would call me. And it looks like we he was up very early in the morning too when he wrote this. Yeah, it looks like 4.46 a.m., which also, yeah, that also scares me a little bit, right? Yeah, that was at the end of an all-night bender. <laughs> so the church never reached back out to me. Shane Bowen never reached back out to me. And uh, I ended up calling the police the next day. Um, I don't have, let me see if I got that handy. I might. So uh, I don't want to do that. Let's see here. You called the police uh, over this bill? Yeah, because I at least wanted something on the record that this person's made some sort of serious threat to me. And um, anyway, I don't have a I don't have a letterhead handy, but I, I did send the page one to you, and I did send a part of page two so that you could see that it involved uh, the person in question. But you can confirm that, correct? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Hey, honey, I'm sorry. I'm so excited about flying to Utah, getting up yeah. three o'clock in the morning to yeah. after I pack to fly to Utah. What Maven? Maven? Maven wants to say she doesn't know what you're talking about either. All of us, and so I, I can vouch for it that it exists. Yeah. So uh, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm kidding. I kid because I love. Yes, I saw it. It has confidential stamped all over it in green ink. Yeah. And so you're not showing the whole dang thing, but no. I did see it. And I it saw just the, the top basic, part. Yeah, it's just the basic facts. You know, that I called, that I – it tells what my what the message was that Shane sent me. It expresses that I have some concerns over this person's uh, mental stability and, uh, you know, have a little bit of uh, apprehension about what this threat means. Um, but again, we do you want to play the audio now, or would you want me to play it maybe after the credits and people can enjoy it after the show's over? How about after the credits? Is that okay? That'll be great. Because maybe I can get home by the time the, the video, the audio's over. Yeah, yeah, no sweat. And then, um, yeah, and, and I don't know if there's anything else you want to ask about this story, but I think it's extremely strange. Here's here's my biggest problem with this whole thing. It's that Trevor Bowen is angry at Bill Real. 
because Bill Real is exposing what committee his dad is on inside of a church. Meanwhile, his dad is on a committee spying on thousands of people, collecting information and exposing all of those people to church leaders to get them excommunicated. It would seem as though one is worse than the other by far, and somebody refuses to look in their own backyard. Right. Great dichotomy. The way I look at it is this. It's similar. But what kind of church is it that has a committee in it that if you expose who it is who's on the committee, you get death threats or at least these kind of veiled threats, that it's a bad thing to tell who's on a certain committee within a church in the United States of America? (laughs) And this isn't an 18-year-old kid. This is a near 40-year-old man. You know, to, to be up at 4.46 a.m. all pissed off and angry and just, oh, man, I'm going to just get that guy, you know? It just seems I'm guessing insane. He, I think, I'm thinking he typed this from his basement. <laughs> he might have. And, and these were two separate messages, by the way. First, he sends, if you hurt my house. dad, if you hurt my dad, I will pay it back. And then it's like seconds later, and I'm vicious, you know? <laughs> I am it's insane. vicious. It's insane. Well, at least he, he spelled it right. I just got a message on Facebook Messenger now. I won't look at it, but it might be him responding as he's watching the show right now. So The only thing that would have been funnier if he, if he had misspelled it and said, I am viscous. I am viscous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so listen, Mr. Mr. Trevor Shane Bowen, please don't threaten the likes of Bill Real. Um, uh, I'm not intimidated easily, and... Uh, I'm happy to to engage in uh, exposing church leaders and church ideas that are unhealthy and cause harm. And I won't be stopping simply because you're up at four o'clock in the morning writing private messages. So, hey, it was 446. It was almost five. The sun wasn't even up yet. You know, (laughs) and by the way, it's not like. It's not like the it's not like he got up at 4:30 and went I've been thinking about this all night, right? It's like he's been up all night angry and upset and frustrated and finally hit the send button and sent it on its way. So anyway, I thought it was kind of funny. So that's the first story I wanted to share. And then the second one was week last week we covered uh did oh, God Wait have a second. Sex- wait a second, Bill. I know you want to get to the second story and I want you to get to the second story. Please. We've talked about the audio because you called because you're trying to get a hold of Trevor's daddy. To let him know what his junior's doing. Yeah, maybe Shane he with should a talk to Junior and take care of this without you having to call the cops. Yeah, I called the church and wanted to talk to somebody in the Strengthening Church Members Committee because it By seems way, like that's the, you right... get the phone number. Uh, I just well, I tried to. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you. First off, I listened to your old episode because I know you gave out the number for Timothy Dykes, uh, who was the head of the Strengthening Church Members Committee at the time. And um, that number, by the way, had a continuous busy signal. So you're giving out a church telephone number, I think in the end caused them to cancel the number. And that number no longer works. Um, I've got it written in my phone, but I won't repeat it again here. So I ended up just, oh, you're muted. It's a good thing. It starts with 801. Yeah, yeah, 801, 240. Yeah. So... (laughs) So I ended up just Googling, you know, contact LDS church headquarters, and it gives you that number. And you can all do that too, if you want to call those guys and ask them questions. But I got to a front desk, that lady put me into, she put a message into Shane Bowen's personal secretary. And, uh, and then that lady called me back later in the day. 
Um, and I spoke to her at length. It's about a six minute and 40 something second phone call. Um, but interesting, you know, and, but nobody from the church has called me back. Meanwhile, this general authority son is all pissed at me. Meanwhile, his dad's, you know, collecting data on a ton of people and uh, making life hard and difficult for people, you know? You know, the only thing that makes this more rich, Bill. What's that? Is that we have every reason to believe that the Strengthening Church Members Committee is monitoring this program as yeah. we speak. Yeah. And, and by the way, when I called the Strengthening Church Members Committee, I'm actually calling the right committee to handle Trevor Bowen, right? Like he's making, <laughs> he is he is acting inappropriate as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, making threats against other human beings. It's probably the Strengthening Church Members Committee that is ground zero of who should be monitoring him and taking care of this, right? Right. He needs some strengthening, obviously. Yeah. So maybe now what dad's going to do is create a file on son. And now there's a file on Trevor Bowen that will involve this incident created by his own father, who's a member of the Strengthening Church Members Committee. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. I think this is going into your file. Of course, why would you have a file? You're not even a member anymore. Don't. Yeah, I don't care. I got the police report saved just in case somebody doesn't believe me. But otherwise, uh, yeah, this will this will just disappear. And Unless this guy decides he wants to drive down here. Okay, so everybody knows that's the audio that we'll be playing at the end of the show to complete this story. But there is yet another story that's been going on this past week involving Bill Real. There is another story. So I, maybe and I'm hoping maybe you've got this paperwork. So um, we did the episode last week on did uh, God have sex with Mary. By the way, RFN, that was your episode and it was fantastic. I think the views are already up to 8,000, 8,500, somewhere in there. Um, amazing episode. We covered a lot of ground. When the episode was over, I reached out to Fair Mormon and I, this was my message. I said, we did, and I, you know, I just said, I'm Bill Real. My email is billrealjr at gmail.com. We did a live show last night on this topic. We used your resource it becomes clear you are either intentionally ignoring an honest presentation on this issue or you're unaware of uh, all the sources and just how deeply flawed your resources I'm at. I imagine your website deals with this same deals with this the same way. Is there any chance you will tackle this honestly and forthrightly or will you continue to present this issue in a deeply inaccurate and since you are being informed going forward deceptive way for all the quotes you don't use or a more forthright approach to the ones you do see here? And then I give him the link because in our episode notes, because I want there to be a record of the historical topics that we talk about. So every time I put the episodes out, I also share the historical ones to ex-Mormon Reddit. And I leave all of our outline with all of its links so that people can find the original sources for all the things that we did. And I said, if you ignore correcting inaccuracies and missing quotes and dealing with a steel man argument rather than a straw man version, such makes you dishonest. Because you remember last week, their little cheat sheet blames the critics as if they made this simplified argument that's easily knocked down when in reality it's much more complex. Uh, such makes you dishonest. I'm hopeful you'll do the right thing and make needed corrections, but at the very least, I can move forward knowing that you have been informed. And Maven, if you got their answer. Oh, they responded. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something. Hi, Bill. Now, remember, I know how fair works, right? I send in my message. And everybody behind the scenes sees that Bill Real wrote, and they all 
work together to figure out how should we respond to Bill Real, right? Mm, so, hi, nice. Bill. Thanks for alerting us to this article. I don't think I have ever seen it before. It is 20 years old and has been superseded by better information on our wiki. We will take the steps to either remove it or update it. Sincerely, Stefan Isakison. Isakison. A, a fair volunteer. Yeah. So there they get is. a fair volunteer who's like probably still using Clearasil yeah, on yeah. his face. <laughs> so they, they find somebody who is so inept and so unknowledgeable about anything yeah. at Fair Mormon yeah. that they can actually write this without lying to yeah. say, I don't think I have ever seen it before. Yeah. And so after this, um, I went looking for their better materials and you went looking for their better materials. Mm, I and, did this morning. I just yes. thought, well, why don't we just check it out? See, maybe they have already taken it down. So I went yeah. to Fair Mormon. We were talking on the phone. Went to the Fair Mormon website. Uh, they have their own little search engine, internal search engine. And I put in, did God have, or excuse me, did, I think I had, did God have sex with Mary? Question mark anyway. And uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Bill. No, no, no. You're good. I'm just, that was good because I needed to add this to the stream. Yeah. The first thing was, no, they haven't taken it down because the same one page cheat sheet that we talked about last week was still up there as the second hit on their internal search of that phrase. But there was something above it that was number one, which was even more significant, I thought. Yeah. So to note this one first, which is the cheat sheet is still there. So we're whatever, five days later from the conversation and it hasn't been removed yet. It really is just as simple as them going behind uh, their website and just deleting the page. It sh it takes us, you know, 45 seconds to sign in and delete a page on one of our sites. Bill, are you pulling this up from a separate source or from the Fair Mormon webpage? Uh, I just did the same thing you did, which I typed in, did God have sex with Mary? And then I put f the word fair afterwards. And like you said, it, this is the second link that comes up. So this right. document is still on their website. Okay. You're doing this live, this search yeah, live. Yeah. What yep. we're seeing is the results of that search on the Yeah. End. Yeah. I just, if you look, go back here, I put, did God have sex with Mary and okay. fair at the end. Okay. And it's number two. So it's so, still there. So just to note, fair, you know, fair, everybody behind the scenes knows that Bill and RFM did this show and that we expressed uh, deep disappointment in how fair covered this uh, topic. They promised to either update this or to take it down. My two cents is take it down until you have it updated, if that's your plan. Um, but they have just not done anything. It's still there. Now that's My not guess is they're going to update it. When they update it, they're going to update it by taking the word sex and making it regular lowercase letters instead of all capitals. <laughs> That'll be, it the won't, it won't be much, will it? Yeah. <laughs> so the first link though is, uh, did God have sex with Mary? And then I don't know how we missed this last week. And by the way, you and I were talking this morning. We thought maybe, there was a chance that this got created after our episode um, to deal with us dealing with it, essentially. But um, that's not the case. I went to the Wayback Machine. It looks like this article was created in 2021, mm -hmm. so a year ago. Um, but we didn't see this in our research. And I don't know how we missed it because it was the number one link, at least today, when you Google this topic. Well, right. now, this, is, this is the letter that you found for last week's show. And I'm saying letter right now because I'm giving it away. What it was yeah. was a statement by Harold B. Lee. Yeah. And you gave the reference, the teachings of Harold B. Lee, 
What we did not realize at that time until we found it on the Fair Mormon website this morning is that this is not a talk that was given in general conference. This wasn't produced in any kind of official church publication. This is a personal letter from Harold B. Lee to another individual named Bruce Bracken, dated January 2nd, 1969. So Harold B. Lee is not president. We figured he'd be at least number three man in the church because David O. McKay is still alive and Joseph Fielding Smith is ahead of um, Harold B. Lee. So he's got to be at least number three in the church at that time. So this is a private letter in which he's expressing his dissatisfaction with teachers in the church talking expressly about God having sex with Mary in order to produce the, the body of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus. At no point does Harold B. Lee say he disagrees with it or that it's false doctrine or that's repudiated or anybody was wrong. But what he does do is he says, I wish people wouldn't talk about it because we don't know enough about it. And he kind of leaves it at that. What did you think about this letter? Um, when we first shared this source last week, it was out of some book from Bookcraft because the part, a section of the letter is repeated in the book. And we didn't have a source and we would have loved to have put this up on the screen last week. But yeah, the, the part that we quoted last week is really just from the second paragraph down to the end. So the first paragraph is actually new this week to our audience. Um, we are very much concerned that some of our church teachers seem to be obsessed with the idea of teaching doctrine which cannot be substantiated and making comments beyond what the Lord has actually said. Um, and, and then we started off with, you have asked about the Immaculate Conception, and viewers will remember because you explained the Immaculate Conception is the wrong concept that had to do with Mary and not Jesus. But I think the letter is interesting in this regard. And I'll just play a quote. Remember Neil Anderson from last week? How few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There's an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. What Elder Anderson just described as not doctrine is this letter, because we laid out numerous occasions in which church leaders, prophets, seers, and revelators taught that God did have sex with Mary. And we didn't know where this Harold B. Lee source was, but we had assumed it was in some sort of official something. Yeah. And what we end up with is in an obscure paragraph of one talk in a private letter, which I think makes it even worse. You and I were talking about that this morning. What, what FAIR and the church are generally, what they're basically doing is saying a single paragraph with a, with, uh, in, a, in an obscure talk in a private letter trumps what prophets, seers, and revelators have taught over and over and over again. And, and in other words, my point being, this church constantly tries to create definitions and it broadens those definitions and it closes them in. And every time it does it, it really can't capture the gist of what's actually, excuse my language, fucking happened in Mormonism, right? Like they, they no matter what they do, they can't quite put the fence in around Mormonism the right way. And here's one more example. Neil Anderson has basically told you that we cannot accept Harold B. Lee's 
thoughts here that we have to accept what prophet and seers and revelators have repeatedly said on the subject, not found in one obscure talk. Um, to me, it's insane. Mormonism can't define itself and hold up. And it's demonstrable when we get to this kind of stuff. And anyway, I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I think the the last line is what really uh, struck me with where Harold B. Lee says, let the Lord rest his case with this declaration, i.e. the one from the New Testament, and wait until he sees fit to tell us more. He's well, told us plenty. Harold B. Lee, I thought that's what God was doing through Brigham Young when he was the president of the church and he taught this. And I thought it's maybe what he was doing through Orson Pratt, who was a senior apostle. And that's what he taught. Oh, my gosh. Joseph, we went through everybody. Joseph went through Eldridge Joseph Smith. Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, who are having their heyday at this time. And one wonders why it is that Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith can go out there and talk about it. Nan, nanny, boo, boo. God had sex with Mary. And they're putting it in their books. They're putting it in their publications. But poor Harold B. Lee is so intimidated or for whatever reason, so in the minority, he can't say it once except in a private letter to an individual who writes asking this specific question where he says, yeah. I don't like this, but I'm too scared to do anything about it. Until Fair can explain why this private letter trumps what prophet seers and revelators have said in official channels at multiple points throughout our history and juxtapose it with the Neil Anderson quote, it, just admit, guys, it doesn't add up. All you have to do is go, look, past leaders taught stuff. They were clearly wrong. We we are embarrassed by those teachings. We are trying to move on from them, and we just don't know how to cleanly do it. And that would be honest. And unfortunately, what we get is trying to make it all fit, which it doesn't. Right. There's so many variables in Mormonism and the way things have been taught and presented over the decades and since its inception that there is no definition of doctrine that's going to corral all these cats elder anderson because you can't keep them in there are some that are outside and those are big nasty cats and some of them are feral and if you give them a chance they're going to bite you yeah i'm still waiting for the church to give a definition of doctrine that works i'll be waiting a long time won't i well, yeah, because there is no definition. There's no single definition of doctrine that's going to cover all of these bases. And, and let me say this too. Now we are in 2022. We're, on, we're more than halfway through the year. Yeah. LDS Church, where can I go to be absolutely certain that what you show me is doctrine? Like where is the list of doctrines that is the, uh, the full list of them, or at least a significant list of them that I can go, this is what we can bank on. And these things will never change. Um, I would love to know where that's found because he, Elder Anderson says our doctrine is not hard to find. And all the places our doctrine used to be listed, those books are no longer published because we no longer uh, hold those things up as being doctrine. And hence, there really is no location to go to, to find the doctrines of the church. Now, they might have like a uh, an institute manual that gives seven of them or 11 of them. But you and I both know there's a hell of a lot more doctrines in Mormonism than seven or 11. Uh, we need we need a list. If that doctrine is not hard to find, let's find it. Show me where it's at. Doesn't exist. It's in the scriptures. It's, it's in, in the, the scriptures. Look at that, Tim. It's Just in the look. scriptures, Bill Real. Oh, thank I you. think I said thank that you. before I saw that, Tim. Look at that. It, yeah, you did, by the way. It's in the scriptures. It's in the standard works. It's Which easy ones? to find. It's, Which it's there in the back. 
Is it is it the part where you can't mitch linens in the Old Testament? Is it uh, section one thirty two where Emma will be destroyed? Like which which where's it at? It's there. Okay. <laughs> I just I thought this was hilarious, and again, I'm kind of glad this worked out the way it did because if we would have found this last week, we just would have showed the letter as a primary source, and we wouldn't have had this conversation at all. Right, and so I think we actually owe fair Mormon. Some gratitude here because they're the ones who somehow came up with this letter, came into their possession. They've reproduced it, put it up last year, apparently on their website. And so now we know that this is not in any kind of official source, but that it's simply a private letter. And by the way, this article, if you can just show this article, because this is also very funny. And I will. They pretend as if this is the only thing that has ever been said about this subject by any church leader ever. And this personal letter by Harold B. Lee, January 2nd, 1969, settles everything. And I will, I'll go to the top. I just want to note what you're saying, because I want to back this up. This is a private letter. This is not on first presidency letterhead, church letterhead. It is not a first presidency or quorum of the 12 kind of thing. This is just Harold B. Lee. Is it even signed? Bracken. Is it even signed? No. That's a forgery. We wouldn't even have a way to prove it, would we? Excuse um, me. That is BS. You show yeah. me a letter with a signature line that's not signed, and I'm saying it's fake. Yeah. So just a, it, it, at best, just a private letter between Harold B. Lee and Bruce Bracken. And by the way, you and I were looking this up earlier. I'm almost certain, I think you're almost certain, Harold B. Lee would have been a uh, not the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He would not have been the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He was not in the first presidency at the time, and he wasn't the prophet at the time. He would have been in the Quorum of the Twelve with less than the most seniors, seniored positions, meaning acting president or president of the Twelve. He would have been neither of those. Right, and we know that because David O. McKay is president in 69. When David O. McKay passes away, Joseph Fielding Smith becomes president, so he's next in line when David O. McKay passes away. And then Joseph Billy Smith passes away in 72. Then Harold B. Lee becomes president for a year. Yeah. And we know that Joseph Fielding Smith put Harold B. Lee into the Quorum of the Twelve. There's there's a source that says uh, he was put there to be to gain experience. Again, this is off. This is away from that. But to say that Joseph Fielding Smith is older, he's in not in greatest of health. He probably isn't going to live long. And they're anticipating that Harold B. Lee will need to be a leader in the church in the as the president of the church. And he doesn't have any experience in the court in the first presidency yet. So they're, they're bringing him in to give him that. Are you done talking about this letter right now? I, I can be. I was going to yeah. pull up to the top here about this thing you said. Yeah, because they transcribed the letter. But this is the whole article on Did God Have Sex with Mary? Do you have the title there? Yeah. Did God, Did God have sex with Mary? This That's is right. from last year they put this up. Notice this, okay? So this is with all the resources at Fair Mormon's disposal. And this what? article. Yeah. This Why article. I'm sorry. No, no, this no, article no. says critics of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sometimes proclaim that the LDS believe that God had sex with Mary, resulting in the conception of Jesus. Who would ever come up with an idea like that? Certainly not Brigham Young or Orson Pratt or James Talmadge. But they go on. This is simply not true. While some members of the church may have speculated concerning the conception of Jesus, the church has never had a teaching concerning this event. Well, I think the church has had a teaching concerning this event several times. So we documented those last week. And that's represented by church authorities saying it. 
over and over in language that cannot be disputed as to its meaning. This article goes on. It's just a paragraph. This can easily be seen. The fact that it has never been a teaching is what they're saying. This can easily be seen in a letter written by President Harold B. Lee, unsigned, to a brother in Logan, Utah. I think they mean a brother in the church. The letter is reproduced below. An edited version is also quoted in the teachings of Harold B. Lee, blah, 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 which I think is where you got it from last yeah, week. That was our and source. The, and that's the entirety of the article, isn't it? To have the letter below it. That's it. And then uh, they just put it in text in case you can't read it. But that's the same the same thing. This is, they, this is Fair Mormon's idea of responding to the criticism or the idea that church leaders or the LDS church has taught or Mormons have believed or do believe or some do or whatever that God actually had sex with Mary. This is it. This It doesn't matter how many chances they get to revise their scholarship. They just keep lying, don't they? Well, they, they just keep pretending like this is all in a vacuum and the best... Yeah evidence we have on the subject is an unsigned private letter allegedly written by Harold B. Lee in 1969. It's like we can prove, we can prove 9-11 happened. We got all the sources for 9-11 and there's one guy who goes 9-11 didn't happen. And then suddenly, you know, uh, we've always been at war with East Asia, right? Because somebody, somebody writes a letter and says, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and create a false argument, a straw man that says that we've never taught this and it's only members confusion. And then the apologetic source that says to trust them for the answers says, look, there's that one guy. He wrote something. It has to be what he said. Meanwhile, Fair knows there are do over a dozen quotes on the record that God had sex with Mary as officially taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It, it's all deception, folks. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all sleight of hand. You go you go to them for the truth, and they show every time they're not capable of it. This is very similar to what the church did in its essay dealing with race in the priesthood. They do not cite all the different teachings from all the different public discourses from leaders of the church or first presidency statements talking about this issue, right? What they do is they cite to a personal letter from Joseph Fielding Smith, allegedly, to somebody else in which they take a paragraph out of context. And I'm going from memory here. Take a paragraph out of context in a private letter saying that Joseph Fielding Smith does not believe that the blacks were fence sitters in heaven, thus resulting in the curse and the ban of the priesthood upon them. They take that out of context. It's a private letter. By the way, it's being used improperly and they know it because Joseph Fielding Smith believed that blacks were cursed as to the priesthood, that there was a ban that was placed upon them, which would go on indefinitely until all the white people had had a chance to receive it, like Brigham Young said, right? The only thing is, is that Joseph Fielding Smith did not think they were fence sitters. He didn't think there were any fence sitters in heaven in the war in heaven. That was not what they did. They did something else that was bad, but he doesn't know what it was, but it was bad enough to get him banned from the priesthood, dang it. Yeah. So they use this one paragraph from a private letter to give the incorrect impression that Joseph Healing Smith was so advanced and enlightened as to not believe in the priesthood ban when actually he did for a different reason and ignore all the different other teachings. 
by the presence of the church, by the way, including Joseph Fielding Smith, who publicly and repeatedly taught this idea about the priesthood ban. And this is their idea of scholarship. This is their idea of apologetics. This is their idea of defending the church. If you go to fair, fair LDS, fair Mormon, fair, I think they're back to fair again. If you go there for fair. A, yeah, if you go there for a forthright, honest conversation of any issue that's giving somebody problems with their testimony, you at this point, if you listen to the show and you still do that, you, then you're, you know, I've got some land in Texas. I'd love to sell you over the phone. You know, it Absolutely. shouldn't take much. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that was a lot of fun. Great episode last week. This was a fun little thing to come across this week. I, I did email fair today. I think it was today, maybe yesterday. And I said, would you please point me towards the updated resources you speak of that tell about this issue in an honest, forthright way? And they haven't responded yet. I'm going to imagine they're not going to. I, I'll be damned. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll just send me the one we're showing on the screen right now. Because that's the only other one we can find, and it wouldn't really solve the problem, would it? <laughs> no, it only makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> if you know what you're already – that's the trouble. To deal with apologetics, you have to already know all the data and historical sources and context before you go there so that you can hold these guys' feet to the fire. Because these are supposed to be the good guys inside the church who are telling the truth while all those critics are being so dishonest. And the reality is they lie through their teeth every single article, moment after moment. The irony is it was the Mormon apologist who taught me all the tricks that the Mormon apologists use. Yeah. But they yeah. said it was the, the anti-Mormons who use them. And sometimes they do. But the anti-Mormons don't have a, uh, they're not a patch on the deception that the Mormon apologists and the Mormon church more generally use yeah. to try and keep the truth from its members. Yeah, and just to show folks, after our episodes on historic or historical episode, I don't do this with all of them, but you can see here on Reddit, I put all of our sources, and I, I think we're good at this, by the way. I think we are really good at showing how we made the arguments we did. Uh, we always want to put the documents up on the screen to the point, by the way, where I went in this morning and updated all of them. So there's that fun document. Remember that one from last week? That was a brilliant find and, on your part. And somebody noticed, remember, they didn't even want to put any kind of drawing here because they don't even want the kids to get the idea, you know, but I went down here to the bottom and I put the actual text of the full letter. And mm -hmm. then I inserted the letter in so that later on generations down the road, folks can Google the issue. And if they happen upon the work we do rather than the work that fair Mormon does, um, you know, then people will have a distinct difference between the critics, honesty and forthrightness in the apologetic uh, obfuscation, dishonesty, deception, and deflection that goes on every single damn day. That's a lot of D words. You got it, my friend. All right. I should probably let you go and play this fun phone call because we're going to learn a few things in this phone call too. Once again, this yeah. is the phone call of Bill Real calling the SCMC. Well, at least Sean, Shane. Shane Bowen. Come back, Shane. Come back. <laughs> Shane Bowen's office, trying to get a hold of him to talk about his errant and wayward son. Let's see if this uh, plays. Let me know if you hear it first, and then you can do whatever you want. You can hang around or not. Hey, is this the LDS church? Hello? Yeah, how are you? 
This is Bill Real, R-E-E-L. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Uh, I assume you're the secretary to Shane Bowen. Correct. Yeah. So I, I would like to have a conversation with him. We've got an issue where one of his children uh, is kind of reached out and is involved with me in some really unhealthy way, and I'd like to be able to speak to him about it if I can. Oh, okay. Um, they're involved in you in an unhealthy way. Well, okay. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm an excommunicated member. I do a bunch of podcasts. Maybe you know that because I know he uh, serves on the Strengthening Church Members Committee. And I was excommunicated like three years ago for talking about all the messiness in Mormon history. And uh, I'm, I'm well known for doing that. And because of what I do... Um, one of Shane's children reached out and made a sort of a threat towards me. So I'm sorry, Bill, can you I, pause I, this for just a second? And if I could and see if I'm sorry, I just have this image of this poor elderly lady trying to scribble this message down on one of those tiny little sheets. 63 year old woman with primary <laughs> voice. Trying to yeah. make it as tiny as she can. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, here we go. Yeah, 63 year old woman with primary voice and she's trying to put the facts together. If we can you know, communicate about it and figure something out. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know where else to do besides call uh, call the police. Oh, okay. So was it recently that this person made yeah. a threat? Yep, extremely recent. Like today or? Uh, like like a day ago. And uh, it's connected to Shane being on the Strengthening Church Members Committee. And uh, I'd like, if I could communicate to him, I think at least part of this could be resolved. Huh. Okay, well, I will, um, you know, there are, we don't see him much in July and can't always get a hold of him. So I'll try and I'll send him a message. I don't know if he'll be in. Is that is that because like July is a month that all the GAs are off or? Yeah, that's, that's the one time they can take a break. Gotcha. <clears throat> they don't get to take vacation the rest of the year. Yeah, I'm sure it's a lot a of hours. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I might not be able to get through to him for a little bit. Can you? Well, I, I, the threat is pretty, message. yeah, the trouble is the threat's pretty serious. So I probably need to call the police tomorrow and you know, I, I don't know what else to do. So if, if you want to reach out to him, if he calls great, if he doesn't, that's okay too. I'm, I'm probably going to need to call the police in the morning. Okay. What, what was the threat? Uh, I prefer to just talk to him and, and he'll, Okay. Because I, I prefer to stay clueless, so that's good. <laughs> and I'll tell you too, because he's on the Strengthening Church Members Committee, he won't have any trouble finding and figuring out what that threat was and realizing it was unreasonable and unhealthy. Unreasonable and unhealthy. Yeah. Okay. So well, I'll I'll do my best to send him a message. Okay. And I've got your. Is this the best number to call you at, or is there another number let's, that will let's, get right to you? Yeah, let's start with this number. Uh, I'm really not a fan of giving out my personal cell phone. Uh-huh. Well, what if he calls after hours or something? Um, yeah, let me let me figure out a way to do this. Let me uh, let me give you my wife's number. Okay. Four three five. Yeah, I was going to write and that I, I, We don't take phone calls just because there's so much telemarketing and spam in today's age. 
If yeah, he I could, don't either. If he could text me first and just say, hey, this is Shane Bowen, I'm getting ready to call you, I will know it's from him and I will pick up. All right, so 435. You got it. Okay, and if he doesn't, you try to keep his cell phone number um, confidential too. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, I, I know Elder Dykes used to be heading up the Strengthening Church Members Committee. How long has Brother Bowen been doing that? I, I'm just new, so I don't know who does what yet. Okay, gotcha. No biggie. Uh, just pass the information. I'm not sure I know what that is. <laughs> you, you don't know what the Strengthening Church Members Committee is. Do you? Yeah, it's a committee of uh, church members, mainly made up of leaders with at least two apostles on the committee. And they essentially spy on all the members of the church who aren't like, orthodox. Hold on, just, hold on just one second. I'll get another call and I'll be right back. Yeah, no sweat. That was me calling her on the other line, okay, though. I'm sorry to keep you holding. You know, the phone doesn't ring all day until I get on it, and then it rings. Yeah, okay. no, no sweat. I was just telling you, the Strengthening Church Members Committee is a committee of members, but mostly leaders. I know at least two apostles serve on the committee, and what the committee does is it spies on uh, members of the church, what they post in social media, what they do in other places, in order to keep a record of all the members who are uh saying you know complaining or criticizing the church so that those things can be used later against them in a disciplinary court oh man yeah i know trust me i oh, there's a God. lot of you go and google strengthening church members committee there's a lot of stuff out there about how these guys infiltrate social media groups under fake profiles in order to accumulate information and data from uh social media groups that are even closed groups that require you to be honest up front and say that you're not working for the church, but they, it still happens. Interesting. Yeah. And by the way, I, I recognize what I'm saying probably sounds crazy to you, but it sounded crazy to me 10 years ago too. If you did a mm -hmm. Google search, you'd find that there's a lot of public uh, commentary talking about the strengthening church members committee, including by the way, a Wikipedia entry. Okay. Well, I might have to look into that and ask Elder Bowen. She'll be on the okay, show next week. I've got your rice phone number, 435. Yep. And I will, um, I'll send, I'll send them, a, I'll probably just send him an email. I'll try and call him. But yeah. it's been my experience the last few days. He's been out of range or something. So Totally get it. Um, I hope to hear from him. Okay. Thank you. Perfect. Have a beautiful day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. So just a, just a quick note, don't come trying to intimidate me. It, it doesn't work. Um, I'm, I'm going to sit with my, my common sense and uh, my intelligence and try to figure out the best angle to expose every single possible person to the mess. And, and the threat sounds serious. You can see it on the screen again. Um, I worry about my wife. I worry about my kids. But I'll spend my, my rest of my life it's shining a light on every unhealthy aspect of this thing. And anytime you come after me, I will figure out the best angle to shine a light on it. And uh, so folks got to figure that out and don't, don't try to protect your dad. Who's doing a bunch of shitty things himself and try to come in and point a finger at me for trying to expose that and bring some healthiness into this, uh, this religion that doesn't add up at every turn, which fair Mormon just helped us see.
Wow. That's so, so interesting. And I'm, I'm envisioning her going and Googling Strengthening Church Members Committee and first off coming up with a Wikipedia article and then that piquing her curiosity. And then she finds that that post you put up with her boss's face right smack dab in the middle. And then she watches the video of Mike Purdy denying that it exists. And then she gets the other video where Elder <laughs> Holland says it's uh, it's perfunctory, whatever it is, whatever he says. It's, it's, it's to protect the practices of predatory polygamists. And then you got what's his name asking what its subsidiary uh, facets are. And, you know, yes. again, the church is dishonest at every turn and it is easy. It's not that I'm smarter than the apologist. It's that I've got the truth. And they don't. It's easy. I could do this, like Rush Limbaugh said, we could do this with our hands tied behind our back, right? Half our brain tied behind our back. Well, you it, do have talent easy. on loan from God. Yeah. These are the questions they avoid, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Anything else from you, my friend? No, that is it. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Uh, oh my gosh, this has been two shows, two shows, two shows in one. <laughs> love it. Have a great day, RFM. Good night. See you later, Trevor.